Hello there, Menor Missionary Baptist Church family. It's good to be with you today as we do our midweek sermon recap, going over uh, what was preached this past Sunday morning. We've been in Ephesians for a while now, but we just picked it back up after taking a hiatus during Christmas. So we're in Ephesians chapter 5. Our focus this week was one verse, Ephesians 5, 21. And the reason it was just one verse is because this verse is kind of... A, not a break, but it's a, a binder. It connects the verses before it to what is about to come. Uh, probably, I don't know what you guys would think, what is to come is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, Ephesians five twenty-two to 33, husbands and wives. I mean, I would say people who don't even come to church have heard that at weddings or something. It's, it's a pretty common passage, and that's what's about to come, what we're going to be looking at in the weeks ahead. But it talks about submission in there to a point, and this verse that we're looking at, that we looked at this week, 521, is the same thing. It's talking about being filled with the Spirit, and when we're filled with the Spirit, that results in a certain way of living uh, that we talked about two weeks ago as well. Uh, singing is part of that, teaching and admonishing one another. There's a lot of different things that come out of that, being thankful. But then the last thing that Paul says is what we find there in verse 21, which is submitting to one another out of reverence or out of fear for Christ. And so this word submission comes up in reference to the church. And again, that's important. I want to make sure that that's known, that we're talking about, Paul is talking about the relationship of the church to each other, how I relate to my fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, and then how they then relate to me. Uh, And again, that's important because I think sometimes this can spill over to where some people might teach that we must submit to everybody. And that's just not possible because not everybody has the same doctrinal beliefs as we do. And so their truth is something different. And what we are united on is the truth of who Christ is and what he has done in our life. That is what is central. That's what brings us together. So that, that needs to be remembered as we as we talk about this, and I tried my best to bring that out uh, in the sermon. I think the best way to go about this today is if you two can just share how selfish you are and how you're going to fix it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, whenever you were preaching, I thought, yeah, this is something Tim struggles with. I mean, I had <laughs> I your guys' really... picture. Your guys' picture <laughs> was right by my Bible as I was typing, and I'm like, right, yeah, yeah. Scott's yeah. Yeah. really hammer Spencer right now. <laughs> No, it is a tough it is a tough topic honestly. As as I was, you know, studying and reading, it was very convicting. Um I use I use a lot of different commentaries when I when I study. I don't know, I think I have maybe 8 of them on my desk for Ephesians that I try to read all of them. Some of it's hard. Lloyd Jones will have like 300 pages on two words and it's yeah. like, "Come on." <laughs> so I mean, some of it's hard to to go through. Uh, but this time, Lloyd-Jones did have some really helpful things, I felt like, in in breaking down kind of the psyche of a selfish person. And it Because I, I think if you ask a lot of people, are you selfish? No, I don't think so, you know. But when you really start to think through yourself and how you determine what you're going to do for the day or how you determine uh, your your different schedules or your money or whatever it might be, when you start to think through how I live my life, you start to find out how selfish you are. Uh, 
why are you angry? Why are you frustrated? Why are you in a good mood? Most of it all has to do with me. Mm. I, I, feel, I feel like you did an affront to me, and so now I'm angry. Mm. It's about me mm. here. Uh, and Lloyd-Jones just had a really good way, I felt, of, of stair-stepping it of talking about this being of being selfish and when this hat you know he's so he says like first of all most people don't think when they speak well that wouldn't come across at first as a selfish thing but the way that he talked about it was no because we act like animals animals are instinctive right they see the prey and they pounce on the prey so that they can eat that's their instinct they don't look and say nah that one's not very fat i want a fatter one or i want a bigger one mm-hmm. They just take their chance. We, the same way, when we just speak, it's mostly selfishness that's coming out. We're not really thinking through it. And so... And then you even said, like the next one I think was, uh, I don't know exactly how you phrased it, but is like, we don't want to think. Mm -hmm. Because when we do think, we are able to then see and recognize our selfishness. Mm -hmm. And we kind of want to push that down and push that away and not recognize it. So we try to actually continue in this not thinking about what we're going to say, what we're going to do. Yeah. I thought that was really insightful. Yeah, the, the person who thinks before they speak um, is probably also putting themselves in other people's shoes, right? And so something as simple as, what is our family going to, we, we're going to go somewhere for dinner, okay? Where do we want to go for dinner? Most of the time the answers are, where you want to go, right? So I want to go to Taco Bell. Knowing very well, three people in my family hate Taco Bell, but I want to go to Taco Bell. Well, where do you want to go? And they say where they want to go, and they say where they want to go. Very rarely do we think, where do we think a general consensus of all of us would like to go where we could make everybody happy? I know I want Taco Bell, but I know my wife doesn't like it. I know my son doesn't like it. So maybe I should say something else. Right? You start thinking and you realize your selfishness. Well, I don't want to go to Long John Silver's. I hate that place. I know they like that place. I'm not going to say it, though. I'm not even going to give them the option. You know, you just start to think through these things. Right. And then you go to the other ditch where you take your family to Golden Corral. Yeah. And that's, that's not a place we want to be either, right? We, gotta that find that, we have to find that, that middle place between selfishness and Golden Corral. Um, there's that happy mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but that's often what you Culver's s- right there. That's kind of like the, the middle. Yeah. But what you said, Scott, is right. Because when we really start to think... Which is, which is a sign of wisdom, which verse 15 says. It says, be wise. Don't be as unwise. Be, be wise. And when you're wise, you're thinking through these things. And as Christians, we're thinking through it in a lens of, my brothers and sisters in the Lord are, are more important than me. I need to help them. I want to see them happy. I want to see them full of joy. I want to push them forward. So what can I do? to make this their best day, kind of, you know, I want to I do this for them. But yet, we start to realize, oh, but I really don't want to do that. And so it's easy yeah. just to not think. Well, there's something that you said there that you kind of clarified this in your sermon, and I think it's important to, to recognize that it's not necessarily that they are more important than you, but it's, and Paul will say this later when he's talking about husbands and what they should, how they should be treating their wives, you're, you're true. It's when you're somebody else's good in the church is your good. So when you do take preference for them and think of them first, you are benefiting yourself 
when you do that. The same way when a husband does something to benefit his wife, he is benefiting himself. But that's just kind of counter to what we normally think of, like like Lloyd-Jones talking about that animal instinct of do what I want to do, do what I think would be good. But it's uh, it, so it's not necessarily saying I'm not important, they're only important. It's more so the recognition of what's good for them is good for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And also, that, kind of playing off that analogy, Scott, uh, Paul says something similar later on when he says <clears throat> that between a man and a wife, no man hates his own flesh, mm-hmm. but he nourishes it. And so he's saying, though, like what you're saying, you need to look at your wife as your own flesh. So therefore, you're taking care of, in taking care of her, mm-hmm. you're taking care of yourself. But and similarly, in a church situation, when we take care of our fellow church members and our people, other people who are in Christ, we're actually just taking care of the one body. Uh, and seeing our unity in Christ. And so it just calls for a, a radical reorientation of our mind of how, I guess, the idea of how we identify ourselves and also our relationship with other people. We're no longer ourselves. We're each other in Christ now, in him, and, and he's brought us together. Yeah. I think what's so difficult with all of this, I'm, I don't want to sit here and go through all the negative things. We can hit on some of them if we want, but... I almost felt like as we as I went through Lloyd Jones going down this about being self assertive, being opinionated, becoming dic- like a dictator, all this stuff. It's really it almost feels like I don't want to say the American way, but the human way. You know, I that you do look out for yourself. That's that's what we're taught. I mean that's I mean that's kind of how I was taught. I, I definitely was taught to care about the whole that sometimes you might have to go through something you don't like for the betterment of other like I definitely heard that stuff don't get me wrong and in school and at different places or in sports or different things you kind of get taught that but overall it was you do you right you you look out for you and so it's really hard I think when we get into church and we take this very serious seriously and we're saying, I believe in God, I believe in Christ and what he has done. I believe he saved me by his grace, and I want to live for him. What does that mean? And it's like, everything you knew, the opposite. That becomes really difficult mm-hmm. uh, for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is where a lot of grace has to happen in the life of the church, because, yeah, we can paint this picture from the pulpit that this is what the church should be. You love each other more than you love yourself, and we're all going to be good. But the fact of the matter is it's not going to play out that way in real life. There's going to be times, no doubt, this week that somebody in our church is going to try to do this. They're going to say, this is what I'm called to do. I'm called to love my brother or sister more than myself. I'm going to submit to them here. But what's going to happen is they're not going to receive that in return. And they're going to be hurt. They're going to be brokenhearted. And that's a hard thing to get over, especially with how our society functions, because it's just so dramatically, so dramatically different. And so how do we, how do we keep doing that, I guess? What, what would be, I don't want to say the motivation, because the motivation is, is Christ, like what we read at the end in Philippians chapter 2. But how do we do that? Because it can be so draining. What do you guys? I guess I think that it, it goes back to all of even even this submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ has to always be rooted and anchored and sourced in the first three chapters. 
And that's why you you brought that out. You can't this this commandment, you can't detach it from the first three chapters. It flows from so you have to it, it takes that that continual um reorientation uh um, Ferguson in our book in class right now, Devoted to God, talks about how God has to craft for us gospel prescription glasses to put on to see things the right way. And and that's what we have to do because our natural tendency still is out in the world. We think about ourselves as belonging only to ourselves and serving our own ends. God, whenever he saves us through the blood of Christ, says you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Christ, and we all belong to Christ and so now you've been put into the one body of Christ that Paul has been describing in Ephesians. He's the head, we are the body. We make up one body together, we're different members. And we really have to I think sink that identity in. And that's where it really takes root because if if you're going to if these commands fail, you need to go back and remember I'm doing this command because this is what's real. But if we're trying to make to use these commands to bring about um, reality instead of living out of reality of what's real. I don't know if this is making sense, but it's like um, you have to really have some some strong anchor for your actions because if not, you're just going to give up right away. Because you, so you have to really anchor them in in truth and who we are in Christ. Mm-hmm. If we are the body of Christ, if Jesus is real, if we really have been spiritually united to Him, and we are inseparable now, then we have to do this. This is just the way life is now. Mm. But that takes a whole lifetime of all of us till we die or Christ returns of learning and relearning that yeah. in this life. Yeah. I don't know. I think some of what you're talking about is basically just the idea of the the one who comes to Christ has a total worldview change. Mm-hmm. Like the basic truths mm-hmm. they are living their life out of, We they need to see that those are are from scripture yeah. these first yeah. two chapters mm-hmm. something i was thinking of tim like when you talked about how like this is a totally different way of living like i think sometimes i've seen in churches a temptation to to kind of broadcast to the world that you can still be uh i'm trying to think of the best way to put this like you can still be of the world like, you know, the, the call to come to Christ and to be a Christian is not like, you're, we're not asking you to like completely take yourself out of the world. It's really not that big of a change. You're basically just trusting in Christ for your salvation. But I, I don't think we're really doing people any favors, especially as we're thinking evangelistically of make it as easy as possible for them to come to Christ, for them to become part of your church. Because then what you're doing is you are essentially telling them Lying. there's not a radical change that you have to make in the way that you think and in the way that you live. And what this passage is saying and what you just brought up is, actually, that's not true. If you've been living your whole life selfishly, looking out only for yourself, there is a radical change that needs to happen to where you start thinking of others and you now live in humility. Mm. And so I think some of it is the church just needs to be upfront with people. If you want to come into this body, if you want... To, call, to follow Christ, just like Christ did, we are calling you to leave everything behind and follow after him. Now, there's a, a clearly a balance that you need to make of like, <clears throat> uh, yes, you are still going to live in the vocations that you have, as we've talked about many times. You're, you don't have to quit your job and go become a, a pastor. You don't have to do that. But yeah, we are calling you to radically change 
the way you live your life. And um, I think sometimes churches hesitate to be very clear and upfront with people about that because we're afraid that it will push them away or it will keep them from making that decision. But really, it's, all you're doing is being honest. It's the fairest thing to do. Yeah. And I think the reason we make it easy isn't for them. We make it easy for us mm-hmm. because we want to grow. Yeah. We want our number. We want to be able to say we baptized 50, we baptized 60, and that becomes a selfish thing mm-hmm. when, in fact, we're being very unfair to them, right? Because we're not telling them the truth. I mean, Jesus even had to deal with this. He's preaching to the multitudes. He's saying the truth to them and telling them the gospel, and they all leave. Mm-hmm. And the disciples are like, what's going on? It's like, they were just here for food. Yeah. They knew I'd feed them. That's why they're here. When they heard the truth, they went away. Mm. Right? And so Jesus didn't play that that little game of let's make it as easy as possible. He was honest. Mm-hmm. He would tell them the truth that the, of the love of the Father, that I'm gentle and lowly in heart, but at the same time being honest with them is if, if, this, is, if this is what you are, want, you got to take up that cross. You got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Like all these things yeah. that are, we're just like to them, like, what is yeah. happening? He here? would have people come up to him <clears throat> and say, I want to follow you. And he would just make very clear, you know, I don't know exactly the scripture references, but well, like, like, we have, I have nowhere to lay my head. Yeah. You know? Or like, put the, you know, if well, you, he said, bury, let the dead bury the dead. Yeah. Right. And all, the, you know, all those people. And he's, I don't, you know, it's not as if he's saying no, but he's, he's just being saying, honest. like, do you actually know the decision you're about to make? With mm-hmm. people, and so, like, in the same way, if we're if we have neighbors that we're trying to evangelize, and that we would want nothing more than for them to to turn from their sin and to put their faith in Christ, we still need to be honest with them about what that means and what it looks like to follow Christ. Mm-hmm. But um, we can't be ashamed of that, and it takes. I, I think being honest with people takes faith. To believe that it is God is still going to work in their hearts, even if they realize that this is going to mean a lot of difficulty for them. Yeah, I think one of the things as men that we've been taught, at least I, I've been taught. I guess maybe this will be this is a controversial statement. Maybe nowadays I don't mean it to be, but you're taught not to let people like walk all over you. You know, there's times you need to push back. There's times where you need to stand up for yourself, um, and I think that that mentality has crept into the church to where we forget the fact that like Jesus would say you need to forgive these people a lot you you know they want to take this from you give them this as well and it's not just it's not talking about the world we're talking about us together in the body of Christ and so I think there needs to be a shift in our thought process of what a real man is in the life of the church. Because I, I see this pervading with men in church where they're trying to have this tough, macho attitude. And I'm not talking about, oh, they never cry or anything. I'm talking about not letting people tread on them. Don't don't step on me. And in fact, I think it should be very different. I need to let be okay to forgive, even though I know they're probably going to do it again. That doesn't stop me from being able to submit to them, to this brother or sister in the Lord. Again, a brother or sister in the Lord who has the same doctrinal, theological beliefs yeah. as me, I have to know that I, I'm i going to be taken advantage of. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's okay. And I say this from like real experience because I, in a, 
even in the, the closest relationships that we have, we experience this. And what we're going to get to with husband and wives, we always focus on the submission thing of wives. That's always the key thing. But I'm here to say, that's the easier job. Because husbands are called to love their wives like Christ loved the church and be willing to die for her. And so the way I've took that, the way I've tried to understand that is I've never had to take a bullet for my wife. Never. I've never been put like that. Like, we're either going to break her arm or yours. All right, break mine. I've never experienced anything like that. Yeah. But my pride, my own wants, are I found have been very hard for me to let those lay aside in order for hers to move forward. Mm -hmm. And there's times where I've realistically tried to give myself to my wife over and over and over again, right? Like I'm going to, it doesn't matter what I want. I'm going to, I just want to please her. I want to honor her. And even though I know she loves me and she cares for me, I don't feel it's coming back in return all the time. And what starts to grow in me is bitterness. Well, fine. I'm not going to do this then. I'm going to point out that I've been doing laundry for a month mm -hmm. and nothing's been said. Right. Or that I've been taking the kids to all these places seems to not care. Mm -hmm. I'm not seeing anything in return here for my investment. Mm -hmm. Right. What, what is happening here? And so I'm getting frustrated. Mm -hmm. And I see that in the life of the church where, you know, someone's willing to give themselves for a little bit, but then they're like, I'm not seeing this return. But yet I don't see anywhere where in the submit to each other, it says for a return. Mm hmm. No, I'm just called to submit, and I trust God with everything else. And that's why it's so important that you you pointed out what the motivation is. Right, yeah. It's mm -hmm. not so that other people will submit to you and other people will serve you. Mm -hmm. It is out of reverence for Christ. And I, like any time I do any kind of premarital counseling, and I'm talking to you know, this soon-to-be husband and soon-to-be wife and about like things like this passage says, I, I try to instill and tell them, you're not doing this so that she will submit to you, and you are not submitting to him so that he will give of himself to you. Mm -hmm. You're doing it out of a reverence for Christ. You're doing it because that is what God has called you to do. There's something that you were saying there, Tim, that is, is kind of interesting because I was just reading uh, about this <clears throat> last night about like there's a been a change of culture where like there's this macho man mentality and uh, it was uh, they, the book I was reading was talking about how there was a shift in church life uh, after the Revolutionary War happened, and like there was this push for independence, and this kind of like went through the country after the war was over. The same kind of mentality started to be taken up in churches, where all of a sudden people wanted to be not only independent of a foreign power or foreign authority, <clears throat> they wanted to be independent of the authority that was the church. And so they started to step outside of the church and not emphasize being part of this body as much. And it's just talking about how our country specifically, because independence and being independent and self-dependent is so emphasized, I think that carries over in the way people think about the church. But the interesting thing is, is that scripture is very clear. The way the church operates is that we are dependent on one another. And that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A thing that comes to my mind um, is the writer of Hebrews in the 12th chapter is like encouraging the church to keep going. And he's talking about this cloud of witnesses. And he says in uh, three, he says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. 
But then in verse 4, he points out something to this church. He says, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What was happening here is you had a church who was complaining. They're complaining about persecution that they were facing and stuff. And the writer kind of puts them in their place. Consider the cloud of witnesses that are around you. I just talked about the people. Remember ate by lions? Remember killed? All these different things. Oh, and by the way, remember Jesus, the one who's your savior? Remember what he did? All the way to death. You're sitting here crying. You haven't even shed one ounce of blood yet. Right? You're sitting here complaining. I know that this is a little different. This is persecution from the outside. I think about this, though, a lot because I, ha- I don't really face persecution from the outside. But what I struggle with is on the inside, that, that urge to not want to submit to fellow Christians or to my wife or to parents or whatever it might be because of, like I said, I'm not seeing a return on my investment here. But this verse always comes to my mind when I start to struggle with that. Like, will you suck it up, you big baby? It's not about you, right? It's not about your return on investment. Like you said, you are doing this out of reverence for Christ, or you should be, not for these other things. And that's what this is pushing us towards in the rest of chapter five, but also in six, because we keep talking about husbands and wives, but it also talks about parents and children. It also talks about vocation uh, of why we do what we do, right? And we do it as Christians. Everything we do is out of reverence for Christ, reverence for Christ, not a paycheck. That's nice to get, right? But we do these things out of reverence for Christ. And, and so this, this kindness, this humility really invades our whole life. And right now, specifically focused on in the church and dealing with other brothers and sisters in the Lord, in our submission to them, to love them and to, and to care for them well. I think it's something we'll always struggle with. It's not anything we can check and say, we have this nailed down. Hmm. But as a church, you should get to the point where it does look very different in your church than the outside world. I think people should notice the care and the compassion that you're willing to take or go, you know, for for the people that you're united with in 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 Christ. Mm. Uh, I just think that's very uh, important. Um, and I know I said something. Uh, I didn't. I didn't get any complaints about it, but about our relationship to our family, our blood family, and our relationship to our church family. I remember being warned when I went into ministry, and I was told, I was told, Tim, you need to remember that God created the family before he created the church. And they said that in a way that it was always put your family before the church. And I appreciate what they were saying, and I and I understand that, but I could never get out of my head when Jesus was, set, was told, hey, your mom and your family's outside. And he looked around, and he was like, who, this, this here, this is my, this is my mom, these are my siblings, right? This is my, my family. And while as a, as a husband and as a dad, I have responsibilities to my family, as a child, I have responsibilities to my parents and even to my sibling. I, I, I do think I have a greater responsibility to fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord at time. I got to know how to be able to balance that. And it's a lot easier when my family are Christians because they will understand, but not everybody has that privilege to have families, Christians. And I have no doubt there's people in our church who struggled with their family because their family doesn't understand why they 
won't come to lunch on Sundays at 11, like the rest of the family. Mm. And they're saying, well, I got to go. I go to church. Isn't my family important? I guess I just want to encourage people who really face that difficulty and struggle to say there is value in what you are doing of putting church family in front of the blood family, so to speak, at times. And it is important. And you got to use wisdom in those instances of when to know, you know, well, I need to go care for my dad right now. I can't go do this thing at church versus I need to be with my church family more so than this birthday party or this baby shower or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. And I, I just wanted to recognize that I know that that's a, a struggle and it's a hard thing to, to step in. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. I mean, I think it's helpful to also remember mm-hmm. that there's this general principle in all of Scripture <clears throat> that theologians have said that um, grace doesn't destroy nature, it renews it. And by that, I think nature, the family, was was a creation institution, the first creation institution, and it's a very good and important uh, institution. Um, grace, the redemption that we have now in Christ, the church, is not opposed to the family. Uh, I mean, I don't want to deny there's times where there's the conflict that Jesus is talking about, mm-hmm. but... At its core, though, grace doesn't destroy the family. It should be a renewing of Mm -hmm. the family bonds rather than a destruction of them. That's why I think it's so wonderful to see, um, in many ways, God generally blesses the raising of the the family structure still through grace because that's why he addresses wives, husbands, children's parents. Um, And and also, we don't have this anymore, but masters, bond servants, those all were part of the household that would have been a, an ancient world household. That would have been the basic unit of society. Um, and similarly, you see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul says the unbelieving spouse is sanctified, made holy by the believing spouse. And he also says that your children are made holy. There's a sense in which gen, there's this sanctifying, not only whenever we're believers, this, God doesn't simply save us and set us apart, but there's a sense in which everything that we have and are in all of our vocations and all of our callings in this life are also his now. And now we have this sanctifying influence upon our family, upon our workplace. Um, doesn't mean, ev- I mean, we pray for their salvation. Doesn't I'm not giving a guarantee on everything, but there is a general a sanctifying influence that happens, yeah. that God blesses that. And I think that we can take, well, on the one hand, um, I don't want to deny there's going to be that friction at times. And we see that with Jesus, and, and, and that, that situation happens throughout all of time with Jacob and Esau, Ishmael and Isaac, Cain and Abel. But also, there's also this basic principle that being focused and have, knowing your primary identity is in the new creation, mm. in Christ, yeah. is actually going to benefit people in this world it's not in, you just have to believe that by faith. Yeah. I, guess. I think I, what you said is really helpful about how grace, how does it go? Grace didn't, it, re, it doesn't destroy nature, but it renews it. It renews it. Th- that's true. But I think there's also another reality that is, that's, that's equal with that is that there actually is something that very big that changes when you put your faith in Christ. It says that you are adopted into God's family. Mm-hmm. You become his son, you become his daughter. And so in that sense, your family is actually changed. 
you're not just part of your earthly family anymore. You are very literally part of God's family. Mm-hmm. And so you're not, it's like getting married. When you get married, your wife's family is your family. And you now have to work out that dynamic. It's the same thing when, when you become a Christian, you are part of God's family now. How does that work? How does your f- earthly family work mm-hmm. being sanctified by, yep. by the very fact that you're now part of God's family? Right. right? There's a sense in which uh, being a Christian, you're more human now than you ever were before. Mm-hmm. That's what Paul says here in uh, chapter 4, verse 24. Uh, put on the new self, created after the likeness of of God in true righteousness and holiness. The the grace doesn't destroy the image of God in us. It actually renews and reinvigorates and restores it. And it does the same thing for the family. So actually, a Christian family should be more of an actual family than mm-hmm. any any un any unsaved individual's family should be because grace restores what got what Satan and the fall led to the destruction of Jesus renews and restores and, and actually brings to new heights. Yeah. Um, and so I think remember that, on the cross, Jesus looks at John mm-hmm. and what does he tell John? Yep. Take care of my mom. Yeah. Behold your mother. This is your mother. Mm-hmm. Right. Take care of her. And right. so it, it, Jesus wasn't abolishing the family. Right. He wasn't even putting down his mother. Right. When he said these, this is my family. He wasn't doing that. Right. He, because, and we see that again by him caring about his mom, even in his pain. I mean, think about what he's accomplishing on the cross. Mm-hmm. And he takes the time to take care of his mom. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And to make sure that she's took care mm-hmm. of. So he's not he's not abolishing that. I just I just want to point out, I one of the things that I see break up families all the time is the passing of somebody and now we have to go into inheritance and stuff. And I really hope that doesn't happen in my family, but I really think that it should be the Christians in the family who step up first and say, you know what? I don't, I don't need any of it. You know, I know it's my right. I know I could take you to court. I know I could fight this battle, but I'm going to submit myself here to you. It's not worth this. You know, we, that, that's the kind of stuff I, I'm talking about, of being willing to give up um, at times and to remember what you are first, like you're saying, right? First and foremost, I'm a part of the family of God and I need to remember that in my other relationships, family relationships, outside relationships, whatever it might be. And that's, I think, where submission will overflow at times, even outside the walls of the building, but maybe to your 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 family. Um, and, and I don't know. It, it's There's so much, I think, that we could talk about because of how selfish we are <laughs> in our life. There's so many examples we could get uh, give, I mean. and um, I, I don't think we have to talk about it too much for people to start to realize can yeah, I, just I point, struggle with this can i point one thing out real quick just as reminder mm-hmm. is that one thing that's really important to be reminded is this is really just um a uh i forget what the word would be but it's it's actually just modifying the imperative that paul has given earlier in verse 18 which is be filled with the spirit. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. All of these things, the main thing that Paul has been saying is, and I think you were, did you point out, I wasn't here, about be being filled? Yeah, you, it's, it's passive, right? Well, it's, yeah, it's continuous and passive. It's yeah, a command, it's a, a command you're told to do. That you can't but do. But it, it's a command you can't do, and yes. it's something, yes, continuous. It's not like a, it's an a one time, it's an, but it's like, be being filled. Mm-hmm. Keep be you know, be being filled. Yeah. With the spirit. And so what does this look like? 
addressing one another in mm-hmm. psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I think that you can, whenever you cross-reference that with Colossians, it's reminding each other mm-hmm. of the word of Christ, yes. singing and making melody to the Lord, giving thanks and submitting to one another. This is what, because oftentimes we see people on TV or we hear people talk about, I want to live a spirit-filled life. Well, this is what it looks like. Yeah. Are you sharing the word of Christ with your fellow mm-hmm. believers? Mm-hmm. Are you are you thankful for everything? Are you singing to the Lord with gratitude in your heart? And are you mm-hmm. lovingly having an attitude of humility towards each other? That's what it looks like and that's to have why, the Holy Spirit filling your and life. And that's why I mentioned when you don't live this way, this is when you grieve the Holy Spirit. Right. right? This is grieving the Holy Spirit of not living the life that a Spirit-filled life produces. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a, you know what, I just really need, a, I just really need the blessing of the Spirit right now to come upon me. Mm-hmm. Not as a Christian. Right. That, that happens continually. Right. It happens continually. And, and you can't empower it. You can't do it. It's, you can't empower it. Yeah, I think Paul says, receive what the Holy Spirit is doing mm-hmm. in your lives. And active, it's an active-passive command. Yeah. Yeah, it's I was, fascinating. I was trying to think of a way to, to better understand that. I mean, so is it, and this is a real question, is it... Um, basically the idea of like you you are being filled with the spirit and so live in accordance with that it is but it's not like you're being filled and right now you have a quarter cup i have a half a cup yeah it's it's we have it Mm -hmm. and we're continually being filled overflowing with it over you know constant it's a constant thing but keep on being filled yeah it's it's an interesting thing because Spencer brings that up because he taught on that Romans 12, 1, 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. It's the same type of thing. Be being transformed. You can't transform yourself. You are transformed because of Christ. Yeah. Now keep doing that. But it's something you can't do. He's right. doing it for you. It's the same type of thought there yeah. in Romans. Yeah, it's additionally, I mean, you see this kind of thing. Again, we, we talked about it in class this week. Is Paul does this um, in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified. It's a passive Mm-hmm. I have been co-crucified with Christ. There's elsewhere Paul will say, I have crucified the desires of the flesh. That's an active thing that we do. But here Paul is specifically saying, I have been passively co-crucified with Christ. And he's talking about, again, that's where the identity thing is so central. What Jesus did is my identity now. It's inseparable. And similarly, here I think if these, these commands connected to the Holy Spirit and the person of Christ... That's why identity is so important. That's why the first three chapters are so important to anchor what you're talking about here. This is what should characterize Mm -hmm. the spirit-filled life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't have anything else. Uh, We'll continue on in Ephesians, trying to finish Ephesians sometime soon, I'm guessing. Uh, But we got to get through uh, chapters 5 and chapter 6 here. So hopefully you'll be with us next Sunday as we look at uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. And we'll see how far how far we get through it. Uh, but thank you for listening. Uh, hope you have a good week. God bless.